Hello and welcome to the Interfish Podcast, where we bring you the most interesting and compelling seafood news and dissect and digest it. I am Editor-in-Chief Drew Cherry, and I'm joined today by Executive Editor John Fiorillo here in Seattle, Reporter Rachel Sapin here in Seattle, and Editor Rachel Mutter in Kuala Lumpur. Hello, everybody. We have three big topics to tackle this week. It's been an insane start to the year, uh, and that's our excuse for having not done a podcast in a while. Um, but in particular, February has started off uh, with a bang, and probably the largest thing on most of the industry's minds right now is the coronavirus and the impact that that's having on the seafood industry. So we'll talk a bit about that. We're also going to talk about the Alaska salmon industry. John's been covering the chaos that's been happening there, and he'll give us an update on what is going on and what we can expect to go on. And then finally, we will talk about land-based salmon farming, and in particular, off flavors, which has uh, caused quite a dust-up in the recirculating aquaculture community when we pointed out that it is an issue. So Rachel's been covering that. I'll be able to talk about that a bit. So, um, Ms. Mutter, in Asia, uh, where you are surrounded by a lot of people wearing face masks, tell us a little <laughs> bit about uh, coronavirus and what our coverage has been so far and where things stand. I know that's a big ask, but just give us a little bit about yeah. what we know right now uh, about its impact on seafood and where things might go. Yeah, I mean, that's a nice small topic to start with. Um, yeah, coronavirus, it's, uh, yeah, as you say, I'm, I'm here in, in Malaysia and everyone is wearing masks everywhere in the supermarkets, on the streets. Um, the airport is insane. As soon as you cough, people sort of take a massive step away from you. So it's, yeah, it's, it's on everybody's mind. And I think this is sort of part of the issue because it's actually very hard to tell um quite how serious this is i think um and the press around it has been massive especially here in asia um people are really concerned about it but whether it's actually any worse dare i say than than flu than the flu we already deal with obviously there's no um there's no uh vaccination for it which is which is an issue but it's hard to tell still whether this is going to be a massive massive disaster or whether it's sort of going to fade away. But the point is that the fact that people are worried it's going to be a massive disaster is sort of what's impacting um, seafood consumption. So yeah, there's a lot of we're not sure yet. Um, we have to wait and see from people we've spoken to. Um, but I think there's a creeping feeling that this could be disastrous. So it's it's happened. The outbreaks happened over Chinese New Year, which is um, traditionally when the Chinese eat a lot of seafood. They eat a lot of seafood anyway, obviously, but Chinese New Year, they eat triple the amount. Um, seafood is very important to the celebration. So for this to have hit over Chinese New Year is, um, yeah, is really, really bad. So restaurants have been closed, top towns have been closed, people aren't going out to eat, um, they're staying indoors. So, so I think the big impact has been on food service, um, everyone has been saying. Um, and with that also sort of key um, more expensive imported fish, unfortunately, imported seafood like salmon and shrimp, um, which is sort of traditionally eaten over Chinese New Year. So the people we've spoken to, um, the, the salmon industry, there's sort of conflicting, conflicting perspectives. So I think 
the Norwegian producers um, are not too heavily reliant on China at this point because it's only really recently that they've been let back into the market. So I think they're feeling like, oh, that's okay. We can send our we can send our salmon to other places. We're not too worried about it. Uh, the Chileans, on the other hand, um, that's yeah, it's much more serious for them, obviously, because they've come to rely on China much more heavily, uh, especially especially several a few of the companies there. So yeah, I think they're feeling like orders have been cancelled and they're not quite sure if this goes on for a long time this could really impact uh the chilean industry um is is what seems to be coming out then of course there's the ecuadorian shrimp producers um who have become very heavily reliant on the chinese market in recent years it's done it's done really well for them um and i think i think it's over 50 percent of their production now goes into china so this is yeah this is not great for them although they're not quite saying it yet but I get the feeling that it's probably um, a point of big concern for, for those Ecuadorian producers. So yeah, it's um, yeah, it's a it's a big issue, but it's still sort of playing out. So we have to wait and see, I guess. So part of it that is maybe um, maybe making it a bit unclear how how it's going to play out is that traditionally during Chinese New Year, workers do take off, correct? So the factories are that are producing white, uh, processing white fish or processing other species. Traditionally, there's an expectation and there's been planning uh, by Western companies that, okay, we can expect that our fish won't be processed during this period. So in a yeah, way, exactly. that may be having a delayed effect. But now th- there's the government has sort of pushed back Chinese New Year in a sense. Is that the best way to describe it? So they extended the holiday. Yeah. So normally Chinese New Year, the whole country basically shuts down um, for like 10 days. But they the Chinese government then extended it a further week um, because they were worried about people traveling around. So people have now gone back to work. Um, I think I think earlier this week they went back to work. So I think this is probably when things will become clearer. Um because this is when exactly this is when usually these importing companies would probably expect their their orders to start coming back in. Um, so we'll probably start seeing next week whether that's actually happening or not. Um, but 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 logistics in China are still very uh, very reduced. So you know even if factories are are wanting to get product, whether they can get product is a is a whole different issue. So I think there's going to be a few different problems cropping up over the over the coming weeks. Now, interestingly enough, uh, in some reporting that you did, you you spoke with Thai Union and um, and Demi in London spoke with uh, Sapmer, who does work on uh, on JD.com, sells our products on JD.com. Um, interestingly enough, uh, online seafood sales are getting a boost, which makes sense when mm. you think about it. But what? How, how might that be? Uh, an opportunity for seafood companies, or how might that change the way seafood is sold? Could that be, could that be something that sort of remains in place, um, that it remains stronger for for quite some time, uh, even after sort of this initial fear of a pandemic fades? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, online consumerism in China is a whole different beast to the rest of the world, anyway. Like it's it's massive already. Um, this isn't, this isn't, you can't really compare it to, to other markets. People buy a lot of food online as it is, um, including seafood. So, but yes, but but people I spoke to at Thai Union and um, who Demi spoke to at Sapmare and also um, Rabobank's 
representative in, in China. I also spoke to her earlier in the week and they all feel like, yeah, online sales are going to be boosted by this even more um, because, yeah, people don't want to don't want to leave their house. Although I mean, there's also still the issue that you might not want to leave your house. But if you want stuff delivered, a person is going to come and deliver it to you, a person who may have coronavirus. So so you have to sort of you have to balance it with that. Um, and also, obviously, these online companies have to deal with logistics, too. Um, so it's not like suddenly everyone will be buying everything online. But I think it will. Everyone felt like it would give us a small boost, at least to online sales um, going forward. And also sort of on a more positive note, um, I spoke to a few people, including um, Henrik at BMR, uh, BMR Tongwei, um, who has a very good overview of the Chinese market. And he was saying that, that longer term, this could actually be good for imported seafood because um, once again, China is having a crisis that is related um, most likely to its domestic food production. Um, this has happened before. And every time it happens, imported, imported food gets a boost. Um, and I think the feeling is that this will probably happen again. So longer term, so even if short term it's damaging, it could be that longer term this could be good for imported product. It's deemed to be safer, more responsibly produced. Um, yeah, and I think Chinese consumers will be will be looking for that after this dies down. Interesting. So you're saying that the 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 Western seafood companies may have an opportunity actually in positioning brands there in China um, and using their made in the USA, made in Made in Greenland, whatever. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, exactly. Yeah, you sort of marketing the provenance of the product, I think, will be even more important. Yeah, going forward, that's a big opportunity. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's going to be interesting. There's a lot of uh, news that continues to roll out. I know there's companies that are um, closing down factories completely. Uh, I believe Movie has completely shut down its operations in China. Uh, and there's other companies as well that are based there, Japanese companies that have factories there, uh, Trident Seafoods has operations there. So it's going to be interesting to see uh, how many of those plants will remain operational uh, and whether or not um, people will still be able to get their fish processed. Now, there are options, and this could actually reset um, the trade flow of reprocessing, which Rachel, you and I have talked about. Vietnam has increasingly become the beneficiary of the of the trade war um, between the U.S. and China, um, and this is just one more one more reason that it um, that it can uh, give it a boost. Uh, Aspersin uh, processes a lot of whitefish at its uh, operation in Vietnam, um, so so it'll be interesting to see what kind of permanent shifts this could cause in the way that seafood is is uh, processed because this is the second big blow to the traditional model of western seafood particularly uh, whitefish uh, going into china being reprocessed and shipped back so we may be coming to the end of an era here i don't know mm. yeah for sure for sure i mean i think china was becoming as you say there was there was the issue with the with the the tariffs um, was was problematic, and then also I think Chinese labour is is less competitive now than it than it used to be. So it's not necessarily the obvious choice anymore um, for processing. So yeah, and as you say, countries like Vietnam then sort of rise up, where actually labour is is cheaper and it's easier to get products in and out of the country. So yeah, definitely that will be really interesting to watch. 
Speaking of chaos, John, let's go to you and talk about the Alaska salmon industry. Um, there has been an incredible amount of breaking news about companies looking to be sold, companies uh, selling out, companies being purchased. In general, the Alaska salmon sector uh, is in uh, disarray after a couple of really tough seasons, and it sounds like it may look very, very different um, in only a few months. Yeah, that's the consensus of, you know, people who are deeply involved in that sector and just people who have watched it for a long time. Um, you know, if you want to boil it down to some simple terms, there's just too much processing capacity for salmon in the state right now. And um, it can't exist like that um, indefinitely. It's not sustainable. And Companies have had, you know, some tough years, and if you're primarily heavy in salmon, you've had it tougher than most because um, you're just not able to absorb the losses, which seem to keep piling up. So Maruha Nitro put Peter Pan on the block, and that kind of brought this all to the fore a few weeks ago, uh, you know, and we looked into it and talked to a ton of people, um, you know, intimately involved in this sector. And we all, we heard, you know, the same story over and over that there's room for uh, Trident and Silver Bay uh, for sure. And then there's probably room for one more, but it's going to have to be cobbled together between uh, the remnants of Ocean Beauty Cook, uh, Cook owned Icicle and Marabeni owned North Pacific, um, more than likely. So, um, you know, and we understand that the Cook Ocean Beauty talks are back on and they've been described as really hot right now. In other words, you know, there's a lot of activity happening. So um, you could see something there pretty quick. What that structure of a deal between those two would look like. It's very hard to say. Um, there's, you know, no real consensus on that. So um, rather than speculate, I think we'll have to wait and see just a little bit. But, you know, it's important to know that um, Ocean Beauty has a very strong uh, smoked salmon brand, Echo Falls, uh, Lasco too, which is theirs, and um, great distribution. Uh, the part that they probably don't necessarily want right now are all the plants they own uh, salmon plants in alaska so um it's probably going to get chopped up is what most people think but i don't know john explain to uh explain to our listeners a bit about how the alaska salmon sector functions because processing companies do not actually own that fish so just explain a bit uh because it colors the value of these companies so tell us a bit about that yeah, so unlike, say, Pollock, where there's a guaranteed piece of the quota that is owned, for lack of a better word, it, that's not the case in, in salmon processing or in the salmon sector. Uh, fishermen catch salmon, you know, depending on how long the season goes and how it's managed, and they deliver it to processors. It's a hundreds-year-old uh, process that... Um, has been in place, you know, as long as that industry has existed. So 
in many ways, um, these companies are battling for loyalty from the fishermen. So it's, and it's a love-hate relationship. Fishermen always think they're not getting paid enough. Processors always, you know, think they're paying his fair share. But what has happened in the last 10 years in particular is Silver Bay came in, um, uh, you know, just came into the sector and they tipped that, they tipped that uh, model upside down. And what they did is they made the fishermen that um, would deliver to them, they made them owners of the company. So what that ultimately led to was higher prices paid by Silver Bay to their fishermen, which attracted more fishermen from other companies because fishermen want more money. That's kind of their basic need, right? Um, So Trident, you know, had to match them and these other guys had to try and match them. But over the course of time, a lot of the fishermen have migrated to Silver Bay and in a lot of cases uh, Trident. And as these processors, uh, other processors have um, gotten weaker, at least uh, the, the view is they've gotten weaker, fishermen have left them even more. So um, it's kind of a scenario that's building on itself, if you will. So the next thing to watch out for then is uh, is further consolidation and some deals getting hammered down, and I, I guess potentially even some some bankruptcies. Uh, maybe on the bankruptcies. I mean, you know, Peter Pan's for sale. The bids are, as we understand, due to be in probably right around now. So there'll be a first round of bids. Uh, they'll be examined, and the ones that make the cut those uh, potential buyers will be given a lot more detailed information about the health of the company. And then, um, you know, that round will uh, shake out a few more and we'll see what's left. So that one is, seems to be in the works uh, pretty, pretty clearly. And the ocean beauty cook thing is as far as we know, you know, in the works as well, that's a little harder to, um, predict because they had been at that this stage before the last season started before the last salmon season and then it, they didn't get it done so the talks kind of broke off so whether they can do it again who knows but you know there's there's so much trepidation and concern in that sector right now something has to happen because I don't think uh, all of them will survive another season. We'll know soon enough. And Boston, of course, is a time people like to announce deals, uh, and a lot of uh, a lot of plans tend to be revealed a little bit more in in detail. So that's just right around the corner. Theoretically, assuming that uh, that Boston goes forward, um, we'll see. There's already expectation that the China delegation won't be coming. So. Uh, the show producers put that out there. But anyway, we're not canceling our tickets yet. We're going to assume it's it's a, it's a go. All right, so um, let's move over to land-based salmon farming, which is right now just one of our readers' favorite topics. Um, it is, um, it's a sector that a lot of people that are in the salmon farming industry look at with um, skepticism or at least look at with confusion because they are making – plenty of money on uh, net pen conventional salmon farming. 
Um, but a lot of people outside the sector seem to be very, very excited about plant-based salmon farming and willing to throw plenty of money at projects that are uh, completely, um, completely on paper um, or halfway built or just, just straight up uh, PowerPoint promises. So um, one of the things that we looked at was we looked at the issue of off flavors, which from our view hasn't been discussed in enough detail. It's been raised as a potential risk uh, in, uh, in some of these operations, um, some of them a little bit more prominently than others. Um, Atlantic Sapphire has mentioned it as a, as a risk to their operations because um, uh, because it, it can color what their future is. If these companies cannot create and supply a fish that tastes good, um, gee, it doesn't matter how much you, you produce. So, Rachel, you looked into this, and uh, you talked with some experts about uh, all flavor. So tell us a little bit about what we, what we know about what causes the off flavor and what can be done to mitigate it. Yeah, so off flavor is kind of interesting. They're actually, it's caused by um, these metabolites that are released by the bacteria growing within a land-based system. Um, I know one of the names for the bacteria is geosmine, and I, I can't pronounce the other one, but um, these are two um, metabolites that cause kind of an earthy, musty flavor in the salmon um, that's in a land-based recirculating aquaculture system. And what kind of scientists have found and uh, even major producers that are actually producing this salmon for consumption right now have found is that you have to um, starve or purge the fish for, it looks like about a week is kind of the standard. And during the t this time, the fish can lose some weight um, one study from 2012 showed that a five to 10 day kind of what they call a depuration period where they actually remove the fish from the system they're harvested and raised in. They have to go into a separate tank with clean water and they um, go through this five, 10 day off feed time that they do leave they can lose four to five percent of the weight, the salmon. And you know, that is a loss in revenue. It doesn't necessarily affect the fish health though. That's what um, I learned when I spoke with a very um, a very talented scientist with the Freshwater Institute. His name is John Davidson. He kind of gave me all the info on this issue. And uh, the industry's been dealing with this for a long time. And, and he said, really, if you follow the protocols for depuration, your fish tastes just fine. And it really doesn't even impact fish health for um, them to starve like this. This is what they do in the wild as well um, a lot of the time. So, yeah, I think it just kind of was an issue that got a lot of attention because it is something that maybe people beyond the very tight-knit recirculating aquaculture industry, um, you know, it sounds like they talk a lot about this issue, but consumers and buyers um, may be a little more unaware. And we have a lot of major land-based salmon projects coming online in the U.S. in the next couple of years. And this is something that consumers and buyers are likely going to want to know about. We're becoming more interested in transparency. So we've kind of... <laughs> Uh, you know, got it going with our headline about it being a dirty little secret, uh, for better or worse, and and it's caused quite some controversy um, in the industry in the past few weeks. 
Yeah, and for, for clarity, too, just like you mentioned, that, the, that there is always a process, whether it's conventional net pen salmon farming, uh, where you do have to go through a, uh, a starvation period or a, a period that allows the fish to not be consuming feed. So it takes that taste out of the meat. So that's common. That's, that happens everywhere. But the, the issue is whether or not those, uh, the depuration actually, uh, actually works. And it's not, um, it's not so simple as a simple, as a, as a, plug-and-play process because everybody has different uh, suppliers. Everybody has different ways of producing, uh, producing their fish. And anybody who, uh, if, you, if you're not a fish farmer, and maybe you are a home brewer of beer, for example, um, everybody knows if the wrong bacteria get in there, uh, the whole thing is going to have these off flavors. And so, you're right, Rachel. The the recirculating aquaculture community was it was interesting to hear the reactions. There was a lot of them that were up in arms and said, "Oh, you know, it's not a secret. It's not it's not something that isn't known." Well, yeah, I mean that's fine, but uh, but I don't think it's solved. And and you know, it's certainly not solved by everybody, especially people who have a theoretical idea of what their project is going to be. And people able to address these issues are not people you can pick up off the street. So the Freshwater Institute, for example, they've got some real experts there. And uh, there's companies like Aqua and Billund, and there's scientists here and there um, that have been working on these projects for a long time. You can't just go pick those people up off the streets to create your system and uh, create a plug and play system. Because you mentioned this, or, or John Davidson did, Rachel, that these issues are site-specific. So it has so much to do with the water. It has to do with the fish, the feed, and it has to do with just the entire systems. And there are no, there are no conventional, this is how you build a land-based salmon farm system. Uh, there's turnkey systems that Aquamouth and, um, and Billund, I think, can do. Um, but everybody tends to have their own little kind of twist and their own little adjustments that they make. Um, and ultimately, uh, if those fish don't taste well, then you've got a whole lot of fish that is not going to get that premium thereafter. And I think that's something that needs to be underscored. It's not that this is a, a, a health issue to the fish. It's not. But if the, the notion of land-based salmon farming is, hey, we can cut down on the transportation costs. We don't have to fly it anywhere, if that's part one. And part two is that they can get a, uh, a premium for their fish. Um, then this sort of flies in the face of that. But it was a very, very interesting reaction. And it was a very strong reaction from, uh, from the industry. And I've made it even worse. I threw further gasoline on the flames. Uh, with a column um, about the lack of awareness among the investment community. And again, I think the, the, the RAS community is t very tight, very small, and has worked on very, very small scales. There has not been uh, the kind of scale, like, for example, that Atlantic Sapphire is planning. Um, and so these are, are largely unproven projects. And I think there is far too much investor uh, exuberance right now about land-based salmon farming. And it, it sure feels like a bubble to me. It sure feels like there's a lot of people that are uninformed, that are excited about it. And when you hear about the amount of money that's being raised for these projects, 
um, people should be concerned. So while I understand that the, the RAS community might be upset about um, the idea that, that off flavors are uh, something people don't know about, well, you know, they're not. And I think people that are, that are putting um, tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars into these massive projects, if they're not aware of such a simple risk, um, then, then they're, they're um, putting their money into projects that, that could have um, not the payoff they're looking for. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's it is an interesting issue. It's evolving and dynamic. And I honestly did not expect the responses we've gotten to the to the land based issue. And we have more coming. We have a uh, Nina, our reporter in London, is working on a piece talking to the suppliers that if you're interested in this topic, uh, the reader should be on be on the lookout for. But yeah, we're gonna keep pressing on this topic just because it really has generated a ton of interest inside of seafood and outside. And yeah, I think it's uh, an important issue to bring up, like you mentioned, Drew. And and I look forward to kind of seeing what we learn ultimately uh, from from this investigation. <laughs> we're, we're pretty much what it is at this point. Yeah, and it's. I think it's going to be very, very, uh, very interesting to hear the reactions from outside the land-based community, and has been interesting um, because it has been sort of touted as a as the end-all, be-all for salmon farming. That this is the ultimate sustainable way to farm salmon. Um, you know, I disagree with that. Um, there's some real uh, there's some real advantages advantages to it. And it's exciting to have the potential for growth. That's the exciting part is that farm salmon doesn't have a lot of opportunity for growth. There's not a lot of places it can grow in Norway or um, certainly not in the United States and not much in Canada, not much in Chile. So land-based salmon farming is, is exciting. Um, but, you know, it's good to throw a little bit of cold water on it and, uh, and just make sure that people are uh, aware of all the all the factors that are involved in in, uh, in raising salmon on land, which is certainly not simple. So. Yes, <laughs> it, it's going to be fun to uh, to keep working on this one. And yeah, I'm enjoying the variety of responses <laughs> as well. So. I'm sure there's more coming in. If, if anyone mm -hmm. wants to see any of them, you can go on LinkedIn and see some of our see some of our posts and some of the reactions. So. The ones with the most vitriol, they tend to email those, and, and uh, we offer those as uh, letters to the editor, or um, you know, or we cry in our beer on Friday when our feelings are hurt. So, <laughs> anyway, all right, well, folks, why don't we leave it there? Uh, remember, Boston, as I said, is coming around the corner. So is North Atlantic. We'll be at North Atlantic Seafood Forum in Bergen. Uh, you can catch uh, a lot of the interview staff over there, um, and then. Uh, Boston, we will be there. We also have an event on the 16th where we will be discussing our Seafood Executive Outlook survey, which just went out today and we have that posted on social media as well. So if you are interested in taking part, we'd love to hear your, your thoughts on where the industry is, is, uh, is headed. And we'll look forward to talking more about the latest in seafood news next week. Thanks, everybody.